Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. I hope you guys are doing really good. Today is another Therapy Corner segment, which I'm super excited to have. Dr. Allison Solomon again and Michelle Massey. And we're going to be doing this hopefully like every six weeks or so. We get together and answer just like questions and answers that people from the AT Parenting community were able to submit. So I have a few of them. How are you guys doing today? Good. Really awesome. good. We had a big storm, not really a storm, but a lot of snow maybe three days ago and it hasn't melted and then it's snow again and it's so nice and the roads are fine, but it's pretty to see. It's like very seasonal. I know we don't get yeah. that here in Arizona. You know, LA that. either. Right? <laughs> You're like, oh, it's sunny and 70, but it's beautiful. It's- so I'm not going to complain. It's 82 degrees here right now. I was sitting outside eating lunch. Yep. Wow. It's actually kind of hot. Yeah. Yeah. It's unusual. That is unusual. All right. Well, I'm going to jump into these. And I thought none of them are like related to each other. So we'll just answer them as we go. The first one is can PDA or any form of autism, high functioning or other, make it difficult for a child to take their feet off the brakes in order to do therapy? And then she continues, can oppositional defiance disorder also make it hard for a child to be willing to do therapy? Are there any other conditions that make it difficult for a child to be unwilling to do OCD therapy? You know, I think we should talk about it specifically for, I put the OCD part in there, you know, related Mm -hmm. to anxiety and OCD. So let's just talk in general terms about multiple diagnoses. What's your experience with how that gets in the way or how you approach it differently? Well, I'd like to start even just forget the multiple diagnoses. Trying to convince anybody, adult or kids, to do ERP and jump right in to like face their fears is scary. And a lot of people put their feet on the brake. You know, it's like really, really hard to say, yep, I'm going to or willing to fight my fears and jump in and do all the things that I've been not wanting to do all this time. So I think we have to start just and acknowledge that part and, you know, how difficult exposure can be and how scary it can be before you like know exactly what it is. And then in terms of like other diagnoses, I think absolutely. I don't know if your community is familiar with the TIBs, you know, things that get in the way of treatment and that can be regardless of other diagnoses. But anytime we have other diagnoses, those things can come up related to that diagnosis specific, you know? So for example, if somebody's struggling with depression, their mood might get in the way to be doing exposures or their motivation to do the exposures may be crippled by the mood, you know, so that could play a role into it. I don't know if you want to add anything else, Allison. Sure. Definitely. I think I've had both with clients on the spectrum, I've had both experiences. Sometimes it's easier because of kind of the black and white thinking and just there's not a lot of nuance sometimes. So it's, you know, oh, okay, I can face my fears and do it this way. And sometimes it's gone really fast. And other times it's definitely a hindrance, especially if, you know, there's a lot of other providers involved, depending on how high functioning or low functioning. So sometimes there's a lot of coordination with the school and behavior specialists and speech and OT. So sometimes that can be 
more complicated and kids are sometimes burnt out. Oh my gosh, another person to work with. And just the idea of facing your fears can be hard. As far as ODD, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles that I've experienced. I think parents have to be even more involved than we would want, which is a lot for me. I like parents very involved. So even more involved. I'll usually meet with parents alone every few sessions and every session doing kind of a little check-in or have them present the whole time. With ODD, I do a lot of pre-therapy work with the parents and try to make sure the ODD is stable and assess whether it's opposition because of fear and because it's anxiety and it looks like ODD or if it truly is. I think ODD is the most misdiagnosed condition that I've ever seen. So that's another thing. Yeah. And I think that you're both bringing up really good points about maybe about willingness to participate is almost more important than the multiple diagnoses or the comorbidity, because if you have a willing child who's on the spectrum, you know, like you said, Allison, sometimes that's actually easier because, you know, they're very like task oriented and step-by-step and very intellectualized, but it's more about, I think the engagement, you know, like if you have someone who's truly oppositionally defiant, not wanting therapy, unless you have some magic fairy dust, I don't know how you're going to get them, you know, to do ERP therapy is it's a cooperative type of therapy like most are. So to me, it would almost seem like too big of a barrier if it was truly ODD an issue. But, you know, then I think, I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but then there's so much work that you can do with a parent you know, and absolutely. Definitely. I was thinking space, you know, mm-hmm. is a good place to start with the parents. One other thought that as Allison was talking that made me that came up in my mind was with ASD. One of the places I see some difficulty is sometimes with the types of exposures, like imaginal exposures are often really hard for kids with ASD because it's so like imaginative. And sometimes with that very concrete thinking, they can't go there you know, and sometimes like they struggle with like, well, no, but this is how it is kind of thought process that sometimes comes up more with my ASD kids than with, you know, kids I work with who aren't on the spectrum. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I agree too. And I just had a thought about the ODD for parents trying to differentiate a little bit. I don't recommend diagnosing on your own or trying to figure it out, but just a little tip is, is your child completely oppositional in all settings? That's one of the diagnostic criteria. It's not they're an angel at school and they're horrible (laughs) at home or vice versa or, you know, so that's something important. And if you think about it, you know, ERP has homework. And if your child is battling you on school homework and going to bed and different things relating to siblings or friends or all of that stuff, it's going to be really, really hard unless they're extremely motivated by incentives and rewards. So, but if they're great with everything except for anxiety or OCD related type tasks, I think that would be a bit easier. Yeah, totally. And it's not the end of the road, you know, so there's space, you know, there are other programs that are just parent oriented that you just have to connect with. So, and I do like that you brought up imaginal scripts, you know, 
with kids with ASD, I've had that myself where they're kind of like, well, this is a story and this isn't real. So I don't know what the, how is this supposed to upset me? Like very literal and also personifying the anxiety or OCD. I feel like a lot of times that falls flat. So I don't even typically do it. So there's definitely like treatment approaches that are different, but I know with this particular mom, she's really asking more about ODD. And I think that that's a good answer as far as looking at other modalities, you know, it's Mm -hmm. okay. Moving on to the next one. So we have some time. How can we most effectively increase knowledge and skills with regards to OCD among mental health professionals? That's a good one. That is a great question. I think the three of us, if you heard us outside of session and consulting (laughs) with each other and other OCD specialists, we're all pulling our hair out constantly by hearing other therapists talk about approaches that aren't evidence-based. And I think probably everyone in your community has experienced their first person that they go to or third or 10th, it doesn't work and they're told misinformation. So I think the International OCD Foundation conference and trainings and all of that, and just a lot of advocacy is one of the ways that we all try to educate mental health professionals. And I know that IOCDF is trying to train more people who are more aware of exposure and response prevention therapy. One of the meetings I was in on Friday, we were talking about this, Allison, of trying to figure out how can we disseminate information either to grad schools so that they do more training in grad schools. Because I know my grad school, we didn't talk at all about exposure and response prevention therapy or how we can get more information out to the public. I know, obviously, since I've been involved with the IOCDF and going to the conferences, they've grown from like maybe 800 people to almost 2,000 people. So I know the reach is growing. And I think podcasts like this one, Natasha, that you have and your page and things like that, that's helping to get information out. And the more visible we can be to parents and families about exposure being so important is that then you can go back to the IOCDF website or other organizations that treat OCD or train, you know, therapists that, you know, then you know what to look for as opposed to going to all these, I don't want to say wrong therapists, but wrong type of therapies to try and get treatment for the OCD. But it's a struggle. We, Allison and I have built a Facebook page for therapists to try and get the work out there. You know, it started with just the two of us and we're now over a thousand people, which is amazing. So we at least have, you know, more and more people to refer to across the country, which is nice, but it's a struggle. It's something we all, all all thousand of us therapists in that group talk (laughs) about almost on a daily basis, I think. Well, and it's nice that you guys provide that Facebook group because I am seeing as it's growing, because I remember when it was really tiny and it's like huge now that there are therapists in there who, you know, I don't recognize like from the OCD community who are saying, oh, I didn't know you're supposed to do that. Like they're learning from our comments. And so that is a really good outreach. Mm -hmm. And I think parents don't realize that graduate schools don't necessarily talk or train for OCD. Mm -hmm. My my graduate program didn't either. It's an assumption that I think most parents make that if you're a therapist, whatever degree you have that you, and you're calling yourself an OCD therapist or just a child therapist, that you've had some training in OCD treatment. And that's really not the case. It's unfortunate. I tell people when they call me and, you know, if I'm full and I'm referring them elsewhere, they want to use their insurance. They say, look, 
really notice what they say on their website. Do they talk about ERP? When you call and ask them these questions, do they know what ERP is? Do they just say CBT? Because, you know, especially on insurance panels, so many therapists or even on psychology today kind of websites, so many therapists will just go, yep, I've seen that, that, that. Yep. I've seen a client with an eating disorder. That doesn't mean I treat eating disorders, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's a good therapist, they're not going to check that box for an eating disorder, but a lot of therapists will check the box for everything they've ever treated and every modality that they've ever done. And so, you know, people will see that or insurance companies will say, oh, see, this person says they treat OCD. We have people who treat OCD Mm -hmm. and cover it. And that's where family members get the short end of the stick, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I have two comments on that, actually. So I don't know if you want to link this, Natasha, but on my website, and I think through the IOCDF, there's a resource that is literally ask a therapist these questions and there's about 10 questions. Yeah. That you can vet them ahead of time so that, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you're going through insurance or there's school counselors or personnel involved, one of the best things that I've seen that parents can do is bring a book you know, a workbook. And if the therapist kind of admits, I need to know more, I know, you know, how to deal with anxiety in general, but, you know, I'm not specifically trained in ERP. I've had parents bring in a workbook that they've been working with, with their child, and then ask the therapist, you know, can we do a little bit of this together or refer them to, like I said, Natasha's podcast, therapists need to get continuing education hours. And there's now a lot more programs than I've seen in the past, probably in the past three or four years. It used to be really IOCDF and that's it. And now there are, I can list at least 10 that I know of. Yeah, it's definitely improving. And I think, I think it's apparent. I love that idea of like, bring a workbook so that you know, they can see the material and, you know, whether they openly say, oh my gosh, I don't know what this is or this approach, or even privately, I get a lot of emails from therapists because Mm -hmm. I put so much information out there on social media about if your therapist says this or, you know, just educating. And so privately therapists will email me and say, where can I get extra training? You know, or I didn't know that where can I get that? And so as parents, we can provide that. We can, you know, link them to the IOCDF professional page. That's what I always do and say, this is a great place to start. And there's plenty and there's, there's other things popping up, but as a parent, you can still educate a therapist. You're doing not only a favor to your child, but you're doing a favor to all the other kids that are going to eventually wind up seeing that therapist. So don't be afraid of that. And you have to be educated yourself. So I feel like that's kind of a a non-negotiable that if you're raising a child with OCD, it's just one of those things. Like if your child has diabetes, you don't really have to be like a skilled endocrinologist. Like, you know, you're just like, I just trust that the endocrinologist is going to know what they're doing. But if your child has OCD, unfortunately, right now in this day and age, you need to know as much as the provider will so that you can tell whether you have a a good quality provider. And that's just where we're Mm -hmm. at. With anxiety as well, that's one that every single provider will check the box on. I don't know any therapist that wouldn't say I work with anxiety because we all have anxiety in general, whether it's, especially this year, whether it's 
up to the clinical level or regular anxiety. So, you know, really besides OCD, sometimes ERP isn't discussed as a particular therapy for anxiety. It's usually exposure-based therapy. Sometimes the wording is a little bit different. So you may see some therapists reject that and say, oh, ERP isn't for that when it's just the language. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So next question. For a child that has to have like two separate spaces in their house, like a set of clothes, of one that's clean and one that's dirty, does it make it worse to provide her with two of everything? Does that interfere with making progress? I know you guys are going to say. Yes. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> billion percent. I saw that question posted on your community the other day, and I'm like, such a great question, but totally the family accommodation you know, it's so important to not accommodate the OCD. And it's so hard for parents and family members because it's like, how do we let our family member, you know, suffer or be in pain, but it just ends up being a disservice to them. And I think working with a therapist, you know, if a child is absolutely not eating or things like that, you know, I've seen kids have to have two sets of eating utensils and, if you're just like, no, and they're not eating, you, that blurs a little bit, but working towards that, always working towards that is important. Yeah. And I think food is really tricky because, you know, you want them to not get a cheat tube, but it's that knowledge of, I really have to pull back. And we're not talking about food here. I don't think clothes. And a lot of times, you know, parents will will say, well, you know, it's going to get so dirty or then, you know, she's going to have to wear dirty clothes or, you know, then everything in the house is going to be contaminated. And, you know, I think the message is if we soften that blow of the impact of what OCD is going to have in their life, they're never going to really be fully motivated to do the hard stuff that they're going to need to do. And so unfortunately, I know intuitively as a parent, it's so hard to pull back. I know that as, as a parent myself, when I pull back, and sometimes I don't, you know, because we're all human, but I know, oh gosh, this is going to be a, this is going to be a nightmare, mm-hmm. but in the end, get more progress. And that, you know, when we're peeling that onion, we're like the first layer that we have to get out of the way. So I knew you guys were going to say that. <laughs> and natural consequences of if a child, especially a teen has to wear the dirty clothes and not change, they're going to be the smelly kid at school or, you know, people are going to notice. And and that some kids have dirty and clean where they can be dirty all day, but as soon as something's clean, they can't cross-contaminate. But natural consequences, if they're ritualizing all day, they don't get time on the iPad or things like that because they don't have time for that in the day. Right. And, you know, kids just don't have long-term insight. It's all about today. And so I think it's really hard to motivate a kid or a teenager, really anyone to work on their stuff. And so if they're not feeling the time crunch and the struggle, you know, it's not to be punitive. It's to say like, this is like the true impact of your disorder. And if you're not getting that full impact and I'm getting all of it, then you're not going to be motivated. So. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of kids I've worked with who I've said, like, tell me, 
you know, what about your OCD is difficult? And they're like, oh, it's not. And I'm like, well, why not? And it's like, oh, because parents accommodate, right? So mm-hmm. I have this one kid who everything, you know, outside the home was contaminated. And so the parents would like bring them home and then go to the gas station or go bit, get food or whatever. So they're like, yeah, I'm not bothered by this at all. But then the parents were super annoyed because it's like, well, it's so exhausting to have to take the child home and then go do all these errands. And it's like, well, no wonder that they don't have any desire to fight the OCD. You make it really easy for them. So that's sort of the difficulty too with accommodating. Yeah, absolutely. When you follow OCD's rules instead of your rules, then who's running the house? And, mm-hmm. and everybody has the disorder. Not just your child. And everyone's really upset all the time. That's- yeah. And maybe sometimes even the parents are more upset because they're they're angry and resentful that they're not being able mm-hmm. to live the life that they yeah. want. Totally understandable. Yeah. yeah. And last episode, because I don't think about my time because we're recording this. So last episode, I had Ellie Lebowitz on and he talked about a space program. And if you haven't listened to that, actually... In real time, it hasn't aired yet, but it will by the time this comes out. So I'm like, I have to go into the future and think about this. But that would be a good episode to listen to if, especially for that parent who wrote that, or for anyone who's dealing with like over accommodation. I think we all accommodate, but when we're when we're living the life of accommodation, like how do you pull that back is really important. Yeah. Next question. My friend has a 15-year-old on the spectrum with anxiety. He has started with therapy in June. His therapist insists they should have one-on-one time without parents being involved to keep things confidential. They don't see any progress yet. I don't think that confidentiality should be in question if parents are involved. What do you think? Isn't it a standard for any child therapy that parents should be involved to some degree as well? What is the best practice? What is the cutout age? What should we look for or expect from a therapist when a teen is a patient? Mm, Great question. Yeah. I really base it case by case. I think parents should always be involved somewhat. Always, always. I will never see a child alone and just tell the parents, okay, foot the bill. And Mm -hmm. so even if it's a teen, I think confidentiality, technically parents have the right to all the records, to everything that if the child or teen is a minor, parents have a right to every single thing. But in terms of if it's a teen that doesn't want their parents to know certain things, for example, a teen with very intrusive sexual obsessions or obsessions or rituals about sex that they're having and the parents don't know they're sexually active, that's something that a child's not going to talk to their parents about. And there's not going to be progress made unless there's some alone time and confidential time. So I almost always, even with kids, I ask the parents when I meet with them alone first, I ask them, what are your thoughts about things that I keep between just myself and the child. And, you know, with exception of if I'm worried about the child's safety or, you know, anything like that, that meets criteria for reporting. Some parents will say, well, if their child is self-harming to a minor degree, they want to know, or if there's marijuana use, or some parents are like, we want to know everything. And that's their right. But we would talk about 
that might not be the best approach. I think it's complicated. I do something, I'm a little bit different than Allison in that I don't necessarily meet with the parents the first session on their own. I sort of leave that up to the parents as to who comes in and who doesn't, whether it's just the kid, just the parents, everybody. And how often I meet with the parents on a regular basis also depends. I don't have sort of a protocol, but I've heard many family members complain it's often a complaint that the therapist that they previously saw with their child, or I'll hear it in sort of other experiences of like the therapist their child is seeing, won't talk to them, won't share any information. They don't even know how treatment is going and, and they don't like that. But I know lots of therapists that that's sort of their protocol. So I think it's sort of dependent on each therapist. It's just not my way. But I've gone through where I sometimes don't talk to the parents for months because they're not reaching out and I don't necessarily have anything specific I need to let them know of. And other parents that I talk to every single session, either they'll come in for a few minutes of the session or they'll touch base with me before or afterward. So it really depends on, on, and that's not just based on age. It can be, you know, I had a client who I started seeing in eighth grade and I still see through college and their parent sat in on every single session throughout middle school and high school and even part of college until I went, you know, <laughs> and it was, we did it because they were, I was modeling for the family, but at some point it was kind of like, well, we don't need you to model anymore. But I think, I think it really just depends on each client and each therapist. Yeah. yeah. Good answer. Cause I think we all do have our own style. I do feel like if your friend in this question is vocalizing concern, that's a concern in itself because <laughs> it's more about you should feel connected to the therapist and that relationship right. is going to look different for each family, for each child and for every therapist. Right. But, but as a parent, you should never feel like you're not in control or you're disconnected. You don't know what's going on because mm. with both of you, it's a discussion. Like it sounds like you both are setting clear parameters. And so there's not an ex concern or expectation that's not being met. It's already discussed. Right. So, yeah. Right. I think also in cases of divorce where the child's going back to different homes and if it's a very acrimonious divorce, sometimes parents are unwilling to meet together with the therapist or all together as a family. So we have to kind of respect those wishes and try to do the best that we can. But across households, it's, it's really important. It's very hard to work with a child and one parent when the child is, you know, three or four days a week and you don't know what's going on and the child might not be able to vocalize that. So I always do a full family session if possible within the first month. Yeah. I'm very parent involved. Mm -hmm. I would say 85% of the time. And then in cases like Michelle has mentioned, sometimes a lot with teens, sometimes I won't bring the parents in besides, you know, they give me updates, pre-session updates and ask questions and things. And then we can decide if they're going to be in the session that time. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's important for, for parents to realize that, that every therapist has their style mm -hmm. and their approach and one is not necessarily wrong versus the other. It's like, we all have our, it's like a chef. It's like, we all like, mm -hmm. we have our style, but like all the meals are delicious. It's just how we decide to cook them, but you shouldn't feel disconnected from your therapist. You know, I feel like, like my style, although my practice getting very tiny, you know, cause I'm doing other stuff. I tend to do 
almost all sessions together, like, mm-hmm. because it's, my style is very teaching oriented. I feel like I'm like a little teacher, but I also have teens who they don't want to meet with their parent and the parent doesn't want to be there either because they are going to tell me really upsetting intrusive thoughts or mm-hmm. the relationship isn't really solid. And so having that parent there, or even a little person where the session's making the parent anxious or it's triggering the mm-hmm. parent OCD. So um, you have to take it case by case, because even though I like my style to be together, it doesn't always fit the family that I'm working with. So you got to be adaptable, but yeah, I would think that your friend should probably reach out and say, Hey, I'm feeling a little bit concerned. I don't want to have a confidential relationship with a child, <laughs> you know? So yep. When you said that, you know, like he wants one-on-one time without the parents being involved to keep it confidential. I don't know. I'd want to dig into that a little bit and and see what that's about. Because with anxiety and OCD therapy, it's not about being the confidant. It's not about you're going to sit here and talk about, like, it might come up, like Allison said, you know, I'm having sex and I'm having intrusive thoughts about it. So it's related to the OCD or I'm Mm -hmm. doing drugs once and now I'm having some moral OCD thoughts about being a bad person. But we're not going to sit and kick back and talk about like your friends are trying to sneak out and, you know, Mm -hmm. because we're focusing on the anxiety and OCD being that confidant isn't nearly as important in my opinion, as it is for maybe other therapists in other modalities who are like, just there to like kick back and talk about right. it. Was. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. On to the next one. So we got three more. So I'd be interested in what the therapy options are for very young kids, like preschool, early elementary age with anxiety, particularly options that are not behavior focused, just trying to correct the behaviors. Yeah, when I read that, I wasn't quite sure what she was asking because you're asking three behavior therapists what other options there are. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, my you know, there there's a couple ways to approach working with young kids, but the majority of it is working with the families and the parents because the reality is is that you as parents are with your kids the entire week and we get maybe a 50 minute session once a week. Maybe, you know, maybe if we're doing a little bit more than a couple times a week, but you know, it's a lot of work of us teaching parents how to do exposures with their kids. It's pretty much all behavioral work when you, or a lot of behavioral work when you work with anxiety, because it's really about teaching somebody how to change their behaviors in relation to their emotions. I know what she's talking about because I know which mom wrote this and she can correct me if I'm wrong later, (laughs) but (laughs) her experience so far, and I think we're talking about a four-year-old, but I think she had some attachment related therapy initially, like focusing on the attachment. And then I think she had parent-child interaction therapy, Mm -hmm. focusing on the interaction between her and they were just looking at discipline, like correcting Mm -hmm. quote unquote bad behavior. And the mom, I think was concerned that she has like an anxiety disorder and she's not learning about ERP or like exposure. So I think Mm -hmm. that that. I love, love, love working with younger children. I think there's so many creative different things that you can do that are still exposure based. And, you know, the behaviors that we would want to focus on are OCD related, for example, reassurance seeking questions. No, that's not, you would never punish or give consequences in the way of how we would think of them with misbehavior or things like that. For example, you know, you're not going to have screen time if you do this. We would never it depends, but most, (laughs) I never like to say never, but for the most part, you would never give a consequence for a child having a panic attack and a huge meltdown. 
But if they screamed a ton of curses and horrible things at the parent, yes, there would be correction of certain behaviors are just not okay. But I think with three to five, six-year-olds, there's so many great things and parents involved is absolutely essential in helping the parent navigate the difference between, okay, this is what we think of as discipline and this is what we think of as behavior therapy for OCD or anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good answer. And it's hard to find someone who can do that because I think there's a, a cutoff. How young do you guys go? I've seen as young as four, but I know in my community of OCD therapists in LA, the majority cut themselves off at like older adolescents because they typically teach it or work with adults. And so they feel comfortable with like late teens, young adult kind of thing, but they don't feel comfortable because there is like Yes, ERP is the same for adults and kids, but yet it's not, you know, there's this Mm -hmm. sort of like nuances that are just slightly different that, you know, so within our community in Los Angeles of, you know, 60 plus therapists who treat OCD, it's like five, I can count, you know, count on one hand or maybe two hands, the number who actually work with younger kids. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit different. I think the youngest I've seen is three, but maybe very few of them, they were kind of mature threes. Mm -hmm. And I would work predominantly with the parents, but have the child come in Mm -hmm. and meet me and, you know, introduce like, this is what we're doing. And like Natasha said, have the teaching involved in a lot of fun stuff and ways to teach things. I see a lot of five and six-year-olds though, and adults. So it's kind of a whole spectrum. I get a lot of five and six-year-olds who ask their parents for help. Like they're like this, Mm -hmm. I have these scary thoughts or I'm having all this anxiety and I can't control it. And those are kids that I do a lot of work with the kid and the parent. There's, as Mm -hmm. Allison said, there's a lot of cute ways to work with kids. And there's a lot of fun workbooks I use Mm -hmm. with kids and books to teach in session about how thoughts work, how we can change our thoughts, how we can, you know, how our bodies react. There's so much psychoeducation. And when they start to feel more in control of things, they seem to grow so Mm -hmm. quickly. One of the things that I've done that's fun is making your own book about OCD, helping the child kind of write their OCD autobiography of this is what my OCD says, and this is me with giant muscles stomping out my OCD and this is when it scared me and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously if they're not completely writing, we would do the same thing that they do at school, but I think that's always a fun activity. Yeah. So I think the key is finding someone who can specialize in anxiety and OCD. I think it's just anxiety at this point for this particular family, but they just had some bad luck, I think, finding the right provider and, you know, somebody who's even just skilled at doing CBT mm-hmm. or anxiety, you know, CBT can be done. In, like you guys are describing in a very cute, engaging mm-hmm. way. But if you go to just a run of a mill therapist who just, you know, they can treat an 80 year old, they'll treat like, you know, a 15 year old, they'll treat eating disorders, they'll treat depression, they'll treat like personality disorder. They may just look at this four-year-old and see behavior. And treat it like, you know, a parenting issue. And I think that that's a little bit of what has been happening. And, and then it, the self-blame game can kind of kick in. And so yeah. 
yeah, it's hard to find a right provider, but it's good to shop around because at that young age, you want to plant those seeds and get them doing the mm-hmm. thing that you guys are talking about mm-hmm. it's great that you both see young kids. Cause I, f- I feel like that's so rare. We don't see yeah. people going that young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And non-directional play therapy is something that I see a lot, kind of the opposite, right. not involving the parents and doing things like sand tray or just play therapy where the therapist doesn't even bring up the anxiety and just says, hi, welcome to my office today. Mm-hmm. And that's how it goes and just yeah. follows the child of however they're going to play and reflects the child's ideas. And mm-hmm. that's not going to help. Mm-hmm. And that's more than not. I think that that is the status quo for that age. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to be an infant and toddler mental health, and that was going to be your go-to. I mean, play therapy and non-directional play therapy was the norm. And Mm -hmm. so just because your child's young and you think, well, they need to learn through play, even if you found a play therapist who was more directional and more CBT oriented, that would be great. But I think you can just sit there and play in sand all day long. And I mean, that, and that has its place, you know, I think trauma mm-hmm. and divorce. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not that these modalities are bad at all. It's just for what issue you're bringing your child into. And for anxiety and OCD, I think non-directional play therapy is, is not going to be effective. And you want to like seize that opportunity at that young age to plant those seeds mm-hmm. and be proactive. So, yeah. yeah. And for, you know, when we say play therapy, there's so many different Kinds, for example, and I'm sure all of us would agree, we can't see young kids without some element of play. It's part of the treatment, but it's based on the evidence-based framework of we're going to educate, we're going to decrease parent accommodation, we're going to set up exposures and facing your fears and, you know, all of that, but through play. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that because that's true because you can't work with little kids without having fun and playing for sure. Okay. Two more questions. When your child is doing OCD compulsions and has good knowledge of ignore, delay, name the OCD, or should be name the OCD, delay, ignore, but can't get past naming it once you encourage to try the next steps and they can't, or they don't, what is the correct next thing as a parent to do? They are more magical thinking behaviors and we've had a hard time thinking of exposures for them and are having Mr. 11 do them as a lot of them are mental compulsions that I can't always know he is doing. We've watched the magical thinking videos. So he does understand what it is, but isn't always on board that the bad thing won't happen. So we're both quick. Um, <laughs> again, yeah. again, it's complicated. I think in session with your therapist, you know, helping the child be like, okay, what's Next, let's talk about this scary thought. What's going on in your head right now? What are you doing in your head when I show you this or we do this? And at some point, just introducing that is an exposure in itself sometimes. So I think it really depends, but moving towards little tiny exposures, writing the thought on a piece of paper and carrying it in your pocket all day or in your shoe in the bottom of your shoe, because that's also about acceptance and, you know, recognizing I can't run away from this. I like that. Literally. It's in my shoe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You do that on purpose. That was good. (laughs) 
I, yeah, I was going to ask, like going back to motivation, is this kid motivated to be fighting the OCD? If they are, then trying to figure out what's getting in the way there is, you know, if they're stuck, if the, is the insight poor, or is it just that they're, you know, really stuck in the exposure that maybe the therapist came up with is too big, then maybe going back to the exposure list and saying, or exposure menu, however you want to call it, and saying, like, how do we break this down into something smaller? And how much are they practicing in session with the therapist? Mm-hmm. You know, I do way more exposures in session with kids than I do with adults. A lot of times mm-hmm. there's other stuff going on, but maybe we need to look at something. What's a realistic exposure that can be done? Does this feel too big for the kid? And maybe it's, you know, if we need to get them on board for motivation, do we work on using a reward chart to get buy-in? Or sometimes I go back, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the act, you know, talking about values. And again, I don't know how old this kid is at the moment. 11. Is referring, oh, 11. You know, so I'm sure they have some values. Well, I'm sure they have values, but in how, how well they can articulate them is being able to, you know, there's great workbooks that a lot of our colleagues have have come up with that talk about act for younger kids. And so it's like, can we incorporate any of that work in there Mm -hmm. to make it, you know, the ERP work seem more, I don't know if enjoyable is the right word, but more attainable um, and more real. Definitely. And I always use a reward system, maybe not a chart, but in the, when I first meet the child, we talk about it. That's their homework. The first time is to make an idea of both maybe things that have monetary value, but also privileges and different things. And then we obviously go through with the parents and everyone's on board and we veto Mm -hmm. certain things or make it, for example, points. I'll let kids put a Lamborghini on their list. (laughs) It might be (laughs) 15,000 million points, but I'll let them do that. Mm -hmm. One thing that I like to do is sometimes kids don't realize that they're doing an exposure. So for magical thinking, for example, I'll say, can you hold that thought without doing the ritual for 10 seconds, just 10 seconds. And most kids can do it or two seconds or counting one Mississippi just to get that. Oh, I did it. Oh my gosh. I bossed back my OCD or I won. And then going from there. Yeah. And I think you guys are both bringing up really good points. And I want to also mention, I can't, I'm trying to figure out where, where was it that she said this? A, a lot of them are mental compulsions that I can't always know he's doing. So to me, that's kind of a red flag. Like you're micromanaging this more than kind of empowering him to do it. And I think that's, and I get that it's frustrating, you know, having my own kids with anxiety and OCD, mm-hmm. but we're not in the driver's seat. I know I say that like a ridiculous amount of time, but like we don't get to control how fast he wants to work on this or not. Mm-hmm. And we can't micromanage what his mental compulsions are. So it's it's going back to kind of what you guys are saying. It's motivation, you know, and I don't remember who wrote this, but I have a feeling like they're not in therapy yet. Mm-hmm. Kind of my thought on this. So they might be DIYing it. And so they're kind of like ahead mm-hmm. of the game and trying to do the levels that I teach in my OCD class. Mm-hmm. And really you have to slow down and you have to work on the motivation factor. You know, like Allison said, that's the first thing that she does when she meets with people. So it might be just motivating, motivating and modifying it. I think I put them together. Modifying. (laughs) I like that. That's a good new term. That could be a new word. And and that's what I do with my kids when they don't want to work on something. And maybe the step that I'm working on is too big. I can always tell by 
you know, I have a currency right now. It's, it's Roblox. So (laughs) a fortune robot, like we are like single-handedly like supplying the funding for Roblox. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I mean, a lot of money, but I'm like, we could be paying this in therapy. So Mm -hmm. it's, It's it's currency that is motivating for my son who is 11 as well. And if he is unwilling to do something, let's say, you know, his is with with eating and he, he's like, I can't eat this mom. You know, I feel like I can't swallow it. I'll say to him, I get that, you know, it's squishy, but you can earn a point if mm-hmm. you do it. And then I walk away. Like, it's not my deal. It's his deal, you know? And then if right. it's too hard, he might say, yeah, I can't do it. And then I might come back and be like, I'm just saying, but like maybe two points, two points. Mm-hmm. And we'll do a little like used car salesman type of thing going on, <laughs> I but I, I don't care. Like I'll walk away and I'm like, you don't have to eat it. Go throw it away. I don't care. Two points mm-hmm. though. Like, whatever. I know you're trying to earn this thing, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. So I also pull back and say, kind of show my indifference because if they think that we're more invested than they are, they're not going to be as willing. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that you guys are talking about, and I think Michelle brought this up is create a menu and it may not be that particular thing that he wants to do, but he might have another option, you know, and Allison was coming up with creative options where your child might not be willing to do this, but they might be willing to do that. You can do exposures around the magical thinking that are outside of that moment. Right. Yeah. And I think also going back to the previous question we were talking about in terms of family accommodation is that, you know, we can't force them to do the exposure, but you also don't have to accommodate their OCD. So mm-hmm. if you're accommodating less then it's almost like a natural, I don't want to say consequence because it's a good thing, right? A natural change in behavior of them getting, you know, where you sort of want them to be without micromanaging. And something that might be helpful, I don't know if it happens in this specific case that this parent is mentioning, but I think if the child's getting really good at labeling their OCD, like that's my OCD thought or my OCD is messing with them, sometimes getting them to realize there's another part to OCD. So the compulsions, you also want to label and call out. My OCD wants me to do this. My OCD wants me to cancel this thought rather than just my OCDs telling me if I don't knock on this, my parents are going to die or sorry, in mental compulsions. If I don't cancel this thought out and replace it with a good thought, they can also say my... OCD is telling me to cancel this thought or my OCD is telling me to do something even because sometimes saying it out loud goes against, you know, if you say it out loud, it's going to happen. So it could just be like, my OCD wants me to do a ritual right now. I like that calling out not only the intrusive thought, but the compulsion, you know, and I think sometimes parents think that that's not progress but that's huge awareness mm-hmm. to be able to articulate and to not, you know, try to hide it and to say, this is my OCD. And then to go one step further as Allison's saying, and to say, and OCD wants me to do this compulsion. Sometimes you sit in that for a while. And then mm-hmm. as Michelle was saying, you're pulling back the accommodations at the same time. And that might be where you're at for a little while. And that's okay. We should remind our listeners, and I don't know how much you talk about this in, in your community, in your classes, but we want to make sure to focus on the behavior changes, meaning that if your child, you want them to change a behavior, you want to reward that change, even if the outcome doesn't change yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make sure that we're saying that they give praise or give reward for them attempting the exposure, attempting to fight the OCD, Mm -hmm. even if they end up eventually giving in, or even if you still notice a lot of compulsions, because 
that is going to ultimately help change the behavior at the end. Mm -hmm. And something else too, in terms of progress, a lot of pretty much everyone thinks I'm not getting better or my child's not getting better if they don't see a decrease in the intrusive thoughts or the distress. I usually tell, especially adults, I'm like, we're focusing on response prevention. You're going to have more intrusive thoughts maybe, but if you continue with this, your rituals are going to go down and then the thoughts might decrease in intensity and frequency it's usually the behavior change comes first. And that's huge, you know, even just being able to just work on that and letting them know your OCD is getting better because you did this. You both are bringing up such good points that I think a lot of parents don't know. So Michelle's point of celebrating those small steps and celebrating any effort is so big because I have seen parents shoot their kids down unintentionally because they just feel like, this is what progress looks like. And progress Mm -hmm. isn't you trying and then doing a compulsion. Mm -hmm. And then Allison, you're bringing up something that I think seems like almost everybody doesn't get. (laughs) I mean, I hear this question on a daily basis is, oh my gosh, you know, her intrusive thoughts are getting worse when she's in therapy. I see that in my, my Facebook groups all the time. Or when will the intrusive thoughts go away? You know, well, I don't think this therapy is working because, you know, I'm still having these intrusive thoughts. And what you'd said, you know, it's, we're not targeting the intrusive thoughts. We're, we're targeting the compulsions and the behaviors and the avoidance that, that go with it. And when you work on that and, you know, hopefully the intrusive thoughts go down or your discomfort around them go down. But that's not the goal. We can't control whether we have intrusive thoughts, but we can control what we do with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And for us, yeah. And for us as therapists, one of the measures that we literally use to measure the severity of OCD is the Cybox. Mm-hmm. And some of the questions are not just, are you not giving into your compulsions or whatever? Some of the questions that dictate severity and treatment response are, how often do you resist this behavior? How often do you try versus how, and then when you do try, how often are you successful? And with the thoughts thoughts as well, do you let them just be there freely or do you apply some sort of strategy to address them or try to do that? And then how successful are you? So if kids are trying, even if they're not successful, their severity score is going to go down. Yep. It's a good reminder. Okay. Final question. Thank you guys for sticking in with me. I know they said a lot. And of course it's a little bit, well, I'll just read it. Can you do a, a deeper dive into harm OCD, particularly OCD harm to self? For example, your OCD says you should blank when you make mistakes, like you should harm yourself when you make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So we're ending on a hard question. <laughs> That's what I was gonna that say. is a hard question. And they want it. What did they want to know about it? She just said, can you dive deeper? So when you have harm OCD, how often do you guys see kids actually harming themselves? Mm-hmm. Like I made a mistake. So now I have to scratch myself. I see less of that. I see typically harm exposures, at least for me, are like, I'm afraid I will do something. I get a lot of harm exposures or harm obsessions about suicide. Like I have this thought Mm -hmm. about killing myself. It's not that I deserve to, but it's like, I'm having this thought. How do I know it's not a suicidal thought? And it's actually an OCD thought. But I get a lot of kids who 
do self-harm, like hit themselves because they think they're not good at, you know, their perfectionism is getting in the way. And so when they think that they're not doing their OCD homework well enough, or they didn't do something else that they were supposed to do, I get a lot of like head hitting or like a lot of pinching or squeezing, Mm -hmm. not necessarily cutting per se, but more like um, little sort of kind of Mm -hmm. self-harm. I get more of that but separate from like harm OCD. So I don't know, Allison, if you see something different. I wouldn't call it harm OCD, but I do see self-harm in moral OCD. So as, and the compulsion is more, I have to punish myself to undo this, you know, horrible thing that I did. Mm -hmm. And that's the compulsion and it works, you know? So I pinched myself or I hit my head or I hit my head this many times. Mm -hmm. The other thing too, is to rule out some sort of tick, you know, teretic type process comorbid with the OCD because, you know, just right type things or complex ticks can involve hitting yourself, you know, pinching yourself, slamming your hands on the desk, things like that. And those are things to think about too. I also every once in a while will get kids or adults who almost feel this need to kind of check their OCD behaviors of like, it's like I had a client who was afraid that they would drink Windex. So harm OCD. Right. And so then they would like test themselves, like how close can I get? Like, will I actually do it? And then ended up drinking it kind of like in almost like a tick like way. So I don't know if that sort of, if, if any of the things that either Allison or I mentioned go along with what that parent is asking about, but You know what? I don't know what they're referencing, although I can imagine. Well, I did have one kid I was working with who who had harm OCD, but then would act on it, which was very unusual. I really don't. I normally have what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit more concerning to treat because it was, you know, she was worried she was going to do something and then she would do it, you know, (laughs) and then, Mm -hmm. but that's rare. I don't normally see that. And I will say with my own child, it's very clinically confusing. And I can see where this is missed probably a lot with therapists who aren't OCD specialists, where it's it's kind of smushed together, kind of like you said with moral OCD, where he doesn't even have moral OCD. Like that's like a that's like a very small subtype of his issue. I mean, like it's really not even present. But if he does something wrong or he makes a mistake, and he's not even too perfectionistic, but it comes out where he has to even it out. So mm-hmm. I made a mistake. And so now I need to punish myself, which could seem like just, you know, like dysregulation and it is mm-hmm. a combination of dysregulation. But then when I said to him, okay, if you don't do that, like if you don't pinch yourself or, you know, whatever, bite your tongue or, you know, squish your toes, the things that he does, what will happen? But then he gave me such an OCD answer. <laughs> well, I won't be able to sit with the discomfort, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, I have to do something. Right. right. If it's a part of the ritual and to, add to what Michelle was saying. And I see this a lot in adults with harm OCD where they'll check in a small way. So for example, if an adult is afraid of inappropriately touching their child, they might hold their child and check to see, do I have these feelings? It kind of gets blurry the same with harm OCD. And there's usually at least one presentation at IOCDF each year, the conference about, you know, when compulsions get dangerous, when they go too far. And I've seen in adults some really scary ones. So 
I think that checking, like if I pinch myself and I don't pinch myself really hard, does that make me feel better that I won't cut myself with a knife? Does that make sense? Yeah. Although I do feel like she's probably talking about a little bit more of like what my son does where I made a mistake. And so I need to write that ship by hurting myself. And I think it's a little Mm -hmm. tricky, honestly, because you want to give him coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went down this rabbit hole with my son where, you know, we would, I would say, well, you can do this other thing, you know, (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. totally like, you know, replacing this compulsion with another compulsion. But then, you know, it's OCD when he's like, I have to do something, but you can't Mm -hmm. let them sit with the discomfort if they're going to self-harm. So it's giving them a coping mechanism and then eventually getting to the point, and I've had this discussion with him too, where I want you to just sit with it. You don't have to do something else, which if it was just pure dysregulation, I wouldn't go there and just say, sit with your dysregulation right. but because I know there's a strong flavor of OCD with this. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, go throw ice right now. The current thing is go throw ice. So I actually got him like a little grip exerciser. Oh, um, okay. You can kind of squeeze his hands instead of, you know, pinch himself. Kids don't do that when they're really upset, but yeah. over time, you know, for this mom too, if you're dealing with something similar, it's eventually I'm going to get away from that where I want you to just sit with this discomfort. Right. Right. The hand gripper thing's almost like HRT, right? Habit reversal mm-hmm. therapy mm-hmm. is like, let me find something opposite that like still uses that same muscle. Right. Didn't even think that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, that is <laughs> something that I do too. You made me think of it when you brought up the ice cube. So, you know, just kind of in distress tolerance, some of the things that I have, you know, for someone that's cutting, not related to OCD, but really cutting, I'll have them do something that still kind of hurts or is unpleasant, but it's less dangerous, like putting a drop of hot sauce on your tongue or holding an ice cube. That's my go-to. In your hands. That's one of mine too, for, you know, sometimes drawing with a red marker, like a big gash on your arm or doing the behavior, but way softer, things like that are some of the tools that I'll sometimes use. Yeah. So I think those are really helpful. So thank you guys for coming here. I always like therapist corner. I think it's really helpful for people to hear. It's so fun. Thank you for having us. I love doing this stuff. Yeah. This is my favorite segment. So definitely have you back. We'll get more questions and I'm sure everyone's finding some really good value in this. I hope hope so. so. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 